Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Talk about feeling hot, hot, hot. Pepper X was crowned the world's hottest pepper this month. It's quite the name, by the way, Pepper X. That by Guinness World Records. So just how powerful is the X? We asked the guy who created it. And Ed Curry also shares the heartwarming story behind his high heat venture and how it helped him find true love. It remains one of the deadliest workplace accidents in Canadian history. One eulogized in poem and in song over the decades. It was 65 years ago this week that the Spring Hill, Nova Scotia mine disaster claimed 75 lives and really spelled the demise of that community in central Nova Scotia as well. Author Ken Cuthbertson has revisited the story of the mine, those who worked there, those who died there, and the tragedy 65 years ago to see if it's still relevant to this day. And he joins me to discuss the book he's written called Blood on the Coal, the true story of the Great Spring Hill Mine Disaster. But first, an 85-year-old hostage released by Hamas yesterday shared the horrific story of her capture on October the 7th at her kibbutz near the Gaza border and described her 17 days in captivity. She did that today in a wheelchair outside a Tel Aviv hospital with her daughter on hand. Yoshebed Lipset's 83-year-old husband is still missing and being held by Hamas, it's presumed. Well, their niece, Rudy Mizrahi, lives in Vancouver. She spoke with her aunt briefly today, and she tells me the family's story, what they've been through over the past few weeks tonight. You know, the war in the Middle East and events that happen anywhere else in the world can often feel like they're an awfully long way from home, right? But they're having a profound impact on many here. You've, of course, seen what kind of impact it's had on different communities in Canada. But imagine if you had family caught up in this. Well, this is particularly true. It's all particularly true of my next guest. Rudy Mizrahi watched on October 7th as Hamas stormed the kibbutz where her 85-year-old aunt and 83-year-old uncle uh, that they'd helped found more than 70 years ago, as a matter of fact. And they were both presumed to have been taken hostage. Yesterday came confirmation and a measure of relief. Her aunt, Yocheved Lifshitz, was one of two hostages released by Hamas in a deal brokered by Egypt and Qatar. Uh, today, sitting in a wheelchair outside a Tel Aviv hospital, the 85-year-old spoke to the media of that horrific morning of October the 7th at the near near Oz Kibbutz, near the Gaza border, and the 17 days she spent in captivity. She said she went through hell, that she was beaten on the day that she was captured. She described the attackers as going wild, blowing up the fence they had built uh, for an expensive fence that was supposed to protect the area. They attacked houses, killed and kidnapped both young and old with no distinction, she said. And she also explained at one point, why she took the hand of one of her captors and said, Shalom, the traditional Hebrew greeting, it means peace, as she was handed over yesterday. Have a listen. It's okay, let's go. A Hamas release video showed the moment the two hostages were handed over to Red Cross officials. The video showed one hostage shake the hand of one of the masked fighters as she said, Shalom. Arriving in Tel Aviv, that same hostage, 85-year-old Yoshevet Lipschitz, spoke softly in Hebrew as she recounted her experience. She said the militants swarmed her kibbutz, beat people and killed indiscriminately. Yoshevet then added once she was moved to Gaza, the experience with her captors improved. They were very gracious, this must be said. They kept us clean, kept us fed. We had the same food that they did. The women were freed days after an American woman and her teenage daughter were released. I'm Karen Chamas. 
Yeah, a bit of a description of what unfolded. She also spoke today, as I mentioned, uh, Yoshevet spoke today to the media. Her daughter was there. She spoke in Hebrew. Her daughter, Sharon, translated. Here's a little bit more of what she had to say. My mom is talking about coming there. When they arrive, they arrive into a large uh, hall in which about 25 hostages were gathered. And after two or three hours, those hostages, five of them, she among them, were taken into a separate room. My mom is saying that they, they were very friendly towards them right so i mean a bit of a contrast to compare to the horrors of the day itself that apparently she says that they were well treated as hostages you will have noticed though that she mentions they were separated and, and it's her 83 year old husband Oded is still being held we believe by hamas uh tonight their knee their niece rudy mizrahi lives in vancouver and she joins me now rudy thank you so much thank you what a relief to see her, I imagine, but what a flood of different emotions you may have had to see her both being released, but also confirmation that your uncle is probably still being held. Yeah, it's a lot of mixed emotion. Um, and I have to say, I was very happy and relieved to see her. But if you knew her before, she's half of the person right. um, who went there and she looks very unhealthy and in a shock. But of course, I'm very happy to see her and uh, I can't wait for my uncle to return to. Yeah, I, you would know seeing her today. I think a lot of people when, you know, were, were really struck by her courage to stand, sit in front of that hospital and talk about what happened to her so long after she was freed. Obviously, she wanted I think she wanted to share that story. Your your uh, your cousin, I guess, was there. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. Sharon, I would assume, uh, translating yeah. for. Her. But you would know from knowing her what the difference was between between the Yishevet that you know and what we were watching today. Uh, yeah, totally. Like, uh, look, she's a very um, optimistic person, so she always tried to find the good in everything. And I honestly believe that it helped her while she was still um, in the Gaza Strip. Um, and she, you know, she, she's amazing. But I really, I was really worried uh, when I see her um, on the news. Yeah. Um, so listeners will understand what your aunt and uncle lived for, did with their lives, uh, having built the Niraz kibbutz, having dedicated mm -hmm. their lives to peace, essentially, having spent years helping Gazans get hospital treatment mm -hmm. in Israel. Um, yeah. It's hard. I can't imagine how devastating what happened on October 7th would be to someone who had dedicated so much of their life to trying to build those bridges. Um, absolutely. And um, I again, I spoke with her today, but I didn't ask for any details because I know how tired and exhausted she is. Um, but, you know, their house, their home was burned to the ground. Uh, nothing left from it. Not Nothing of these 50 plus years of, you know, memories. Um and yeah, um, I, I, I know 
they were devastated um, because they really, as you said, as you mentioned, they were always uh, helped people um, fight for people's rights, helped uh, people, uh, the Palestinian citizens, you know. And, um, yeah, they burned their houses, they... Uh, kill their friends, their kids, you know, everybody. It's like, it's like horrible, horrific, horrific uh, situation. And I'm, uh, as I said, I'm really glad that she's she's back. And um, it's just really important to remember that uh, with the happiness that we all feel seeing her back, there are still like around 200 people, children, elderly. Uh, men, women, uh, kids, parents, uh, young people who went to uh, celebrate a peace party, and we don't know what's going on with them, including my about, uncle, yeah. Oded. It, including your uncle. How was that conversation yeah. with your with your aunt today? I, I, I can imagine she'd had a very, very long 24 hours, given the circumstances, and facing facing the world, essentially, to tell her story. What was your conversation like? Well, it was more, more like, um, you know, I'm so glad that you're here. And um, she said, I love you. You know, please tell your kids I love them. I said, I know, and we all love you, and we're so happy. You know, I... I didn't want to talk too much and too long because she sounded completely exhausted and um, she had people all the time around her, you know. Um, so uh, the only thing I know um, is that she was separated from my uncle, so she has no clue what's going on with him right. or I, I, you know, where yeah. he is. He, and clearly wasn't told anything either about what might where other hostages may be. I gather just from listening to her speak that she had been um, off with with a small group with a small group. Yeah. Plus, um, from what I understand too, in the beginning they took her they took her to one place, and she knew where it was. But after that, she had no clue where they taken her because there was uh, there are many many underground tunnels. Um, she described them like a spider web, you know, so she had no clue where she was even. Um, and, and you had mentioned that she, she's not in, in ideal health either when this all began. So there must yes. have been concern as the days went on that just her health, her, her health was going to deteriorate. Um, yes, absolutely. And um, she mentioned um, that they got... Um, you know, some medication. The, there were a doctor who came to watch them, and she was talking about the sanit- sanitary uh, condition over there. Right. But she also said that they had to keep them clean because they were afraid of getting diseases. They were underground, you know. So uh, they were afraid, the terrorists, that they will get uh, disease and then they will get it. And But yeah, and as I said, she she doesn't look healthy at all. She like, for me, she looks like a skeleton almost, you know. I, I've seen her back in August last time, and this is really, really doesn't look good.
There's been a lot of talk about about your, about your aunt um, extending her hand and saying shalom when she was being released, mm-hmm. and I think you mentioned it earlier that it says a lot about about her in many ways too, just her outlook on life, not necessarily a recognition of anything good, but simply that was that's in her nature to do something like that. Um, yes, yeah. Um, you know, many people raise their eyes like, "Wow, why did she do this?" But you know, she um, first of all, I guess she was in a in a stage of a shock yet. But right again, this is who she is. You know, she. This is who she is. Maybe she, I, I don't know. I I can't speak for her about that. Uh, you know, about this issue. Didn't ask her about it. Um, but definitely, I think it's part of uh, her personality. Well, now for the people, yeah. I mean, again, as we were talking about earlier, she devoted an entire lifetime to sort of the idea of the collective and the idea of of helping other people out, including her Palestinian neighbors in Gaza, who she used to bring mm-hmm. for for medical treatment. I mean, this was part of who she's been since she was a teenager. She believed deeply in in this in all of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What happens now? Right. Do you think? Yeah. What happens now? Do you think? I'm, um, I've, I've, you know, it's 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 so devastatingly. What's happened is so indescribably awful. And you think about those who devoted so much of their lives to trying to make that part of the pa- that little patch of the world a better place. And you wonder what they're going to do now. And of course, there's still the issue of your uncle, right? Yeah. Um, you know, if you ask me if she's going to change her ways, my answer will be no. Um, she, I think she strongly still believe in, in peace and humanity. And, um, again, she was always, they, they, she, both of them, uh, my aunt, my aunt and my uncle were always helping the Palestinian citizens. They were never, uh, friends for, uh, you know, with a terrorist group. So I do not think that anything will change the, the only thing that has been changed, unfortunately, is that their home, as I mentioned earlier, burned to the ground. Uh, they lost so many uh, friends and loved ones, you know, that they knew, and they all lived together in a kibbutz and raised kids together. Um, so it's it's a traumatic event. Um, they will have to find a way to uh, heal, you know, Um and I do believe that they will build the kibbutz again. Um, but I, I see it as uh, there is still a way, a long way for uh, recovering from all of it. Yeah, and difficult for you, no doubt, too, being so far away, right? Being so far away oh, from yeah. them. Definitely, definitely. Um, well, you know, yeah. other than them, I have other family in Israel who. Everybody sits a lot in the safe room now, and everybody experienced like missiles and rockets falling on them. Um, so yeah, it's really hard to be here right now and not with them. Well, Rudy, uh, it, it was it was I think all of, I think everyone those who don't know your your aunt were happy to see her free and and today speaking about this. And thank you so much for sharing her story and your story with me tonight. I really appreciate it. And please give her our best next time you talk to her. I will. Thank you very much.
It's incredible how calm that pilot is, one of the pilots on Horizon Air Flight uh, 2059. The calmness from the flight deck uh, belies the seriousness of what had just taken place, sort of calmly explaining they had just averted what could have been a real disaster, stopping and subduing a man who had tried to shut down the engines of the Embraer E-175. Well, how did that person get into the cockpit, you might wonder? Well, the suspect was a colleague or is a colleague, an off-duty 44-year-old Alaska Airlines pilot who traveling in the cockpit's jump seat on a flight from Everett, Washington to San Francisco on Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening. Uh, the plane, of course, forced to make an emergency landing in Portland, Oregon because of this. Uh, today, state prosecutors in Oregon filed 83 counts of attempted murder against Joseph David Emerson uh, and one count of interfering with a flight crew. His attorney entered uh, not guilty pleas on his behalf for all of it. Now, there are court documents that have been released today that say the off-duty pilot uh, tried to cut the engines on a flight in midair. He told police he had recently taken uh, psychedelic mushrooms as his mental health had worsened. Uh, court documents also say Emerson told police he'd been struggling with depression, uh, that a friend had recently died. Uh, and this is sort of Part and parcel of this whole story, we're finding out more about it because it's such a, when you first heard it, it's such a strange story. Why would a pilot a, a, who has a long history, I mean, he worked at Alaska Airlines, I think he went to work for Virgin Atlantic for a while, then came back to Alaska Airlines. So he's had a long career, apparently no blemishes on that career at all. And there is an aspect about pilots and mental health that's going to be important to talk about uh, in all of this. Jeff, Jeff Price is an aviation security expert and author of a book called Practical Aviation Security. Uh, and he joins me now. Jeff, thank you so much. Uh, thanks for having me, Ben. This is quite the story. Um, what do we know so far? What have we found out uh, about what exactly happened in that cockpit on Sunday? Uh, right now, it's still sort of a mystery. As, as far as we know, uh, the individual tried to, was jump seating, which is a very common procedure with the airlines. Uh, air, employees from the same airline, employees from different airlines uh, will often jump seat, which basically means ride along in the in the flight deck. And so far, our understanding is he tried to pull the uh, fire extinguisher handles, uh, which would have uh, shut off the engines, uh, cut the fuel off to the engines, and basically shut the aircraft down. Uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, was was unable to do that. Um, and flight crew responded uh, apparently right away so that there was no loss of, of engine thrust. And I was able to uh, subdue this guy enough to get him into the cabin. Uh, what, what There's some speculation that some passengers might have helped keep him in the cabin um, and kind of subdue him or at least prevent him from trying to get back onto the flight deck uh, where the pilots were able to... to have full control of the aircraft, and then they called for assistance and were able to divert into the, the nearest airport they could get into and request law enforcement assistance. Right. I guess they wound up in Portland. They were on their way to San Francisco. Uh, so as you mentioned, clearly this was in a situation where the person, the suspect here, was certainly welcome in the cockpit. As you mentioned, this is common practice for for pilots to to, uh, to be in the jump seat, especially I think in this, in this case, the flight was full and they're just going from basically being moved around, right? Um, 
any idea what so what exactly happened in terms of the equipment what was he what is he alleged to have done uh, it, and it would have obviously had a catastrophic consequence for the plane if no one had intervened yeah the uh as far as what we know right now which is which is unfortunately very little uh more this information comes out is uh he either tried to to retard the throttles back or pull the fire extinguisher handles uh which will extinguish the engine uh fuel source um and any fire that would be in that area which there's naturally fire in a jet engine that's how it creates thrust but uh in this case it would have basically extinguished the engine uh along with cutting out possibly hydraulics and other things to that area because uh, the engines power a lot of things other than just moving the aircraft along just uh they'll power other systems electrical systems and so forth so as far as we know he tried to uh to tamper with a system that would have shut all of that down and uh fortunately was was not successful with that yeah i i guess we don't we don't know exactly what uh what was going on we do know as far as i can tell that the pilot in question had a long and and pretty unblemished career as far as i can tell he'd been with the airline for a long period of time had left and come back uh but he was a senior pilot or he is a senior pilot it's hard to know what's uh what's in the mind of somebody uh we've We've sadly seen this type of situation before. Uh, this happened back in 1994 with a FedEx pilot uh, who was a, a second officer on a DC-10. He was jump seating and attacked the flight crew with, uh, oddly enough, a spear gun and hammers and tried to take over the flight to crash the plane into the ground for uh, what we think was an insurance money uh, collection because it was apparently going through marital issues and needed money right. for child support. Um, so... You know, that was a, a former Navy aviator who, you know, again, unblemished record. And one day just uh, just decided that was the only option for them. Uh, who knows what the case is in this situation? Um, it's it's always kind of that traditional, um, you know, person never did anything wrong before. There was no signs, no indicators. But I think once they start looking into things, uh, there's usually some sort of sign or indicator somewhere along the way. Uh, that there there was probably some trouble in this individual's life, um, if not if not mentally psychologically, then you know family issues or or something along those lines. There's some triggering event that that might have occurred here. Yeah, in this case, if you listen to the pilots, uh, because that audio has been shared widely, they sound awfully calm. I mean, this seems like a situation where I guess once they had everything under control, um, they simply went to land as quickly as they could and make sure that and to make sure that law enforcement was there to take this person into custody uh but but clearly in this case the training involved for the pilots that were flying the plane seemed to have functioned they obviously recognized something was going wrong pretty quickly and then took care of the situation yeah they're to be commended for that uh, you're, you're talking about a situation this is this is basically like driving a, a known family member or friend around suddenly they you know they attack you while you're driving the car you know, it's not something you expect to happen. And they were able to to keep control of the aircraft, uh, keep the aircraft in a safe condition, uh, react quickly and calmly. And once the individual was, was off the flight deck, uh, be able to follow their procedures and and keep the aircraft operational safely until they could until they could land. Which, frankly, that's what pilots are, are trained to do: is really not not lose their cool, um, so to speak. And we we saw that during the. Uh, the landing on the Hudson uh, with Captain Sullenberger. If you listen to the radio from from those transmissions or those transmissions from the radio, um, you, you don't see you don't hear panic in people's voices or anything. Uh, you hear very much procedural step by step. 
this is what we can do. This is what we're going to do. Obviously, Jeff, anytime these things happen, people start to call into question the security procedures, right? Uh, do you think, I mean, un- jump seating, as you pointed out, is sort of the most standard of things that happens, allowing a fellow pilot uh, into the cabin for a flight, especially when there's no room on the plane. Uh, are they going to have to start reviewing that, do you think? Uh, they, they actually stopped the procedure shortly after 9-11, just right. so that they kind of get a handle on things. Um, and then the procedure came back. It's it's such a normal procedure. It's been part of uh, of airline travel for forever, and uh, it's incredibly common. I, I think what they'll probably do in this case is they'll take a look at the incident and take a look at the circumstances surrounding it and see if there's anything unusual, uh, anything out of the ordinary or a procedure that possibly wasn't followed. Uh, so far, it sounds like you know everything was was the way it was planned. Uh, it's one of those. Uh, one of those threats that's uh, very difficult to to avoid uh, because you're talking about people that have access to the flight deck, uh, that have access to the aircraft controls. So the, to to kind of try and find other solutions for that um, other than just awareness of the individual uh, who you're, who you're uh, flying with because the flight crew can deny somebody to fly in the jump seat. Yeah, right. typically, typically they don't, but they can if they if they feel uncomfortable or in a situation, uh, they can decide to do that, um, and and that might happen. We might see that a little bit more from time to time. If somebody's just not comfortable with an individual, but uh, I think overall the policy will just be reviewed. Um, it's one of those where what really worked in the security system, what didn't work. What worked is the flight crew intervened right away, and that that was really our layer of security that, that worked. Uh, when you've got somebody that is capable of flying the aircraft, it's authorized to be on the flight deck, that uh, that just goes rogue for whatever reason, uh, there aren't too many layers of security or safety left over after that. Unfortunately, in these cases, those layers did work. Right. As you mentioned, after 9-11, of course, I mean, the cockpits themselves have become far more fortress-like now than they were pre-9-11. And I think we all notice that even when we're on we're on board. The mental health situation, and, and not to jump to conclusions here, uh, but the mental health situation, I remember that distinctly came up after the German Wings incident in Europe when the pilot uh, crashed the plane. Uh, the mental health assessment of pilots seems to have evolved a lot, but clearly that's going to be something that is being looked that will be looked at here, even though the pilot himself, um, who was accused in this case, was not on duty. Yeah, this brings up a really great point because the industry debate for a while has been whether a, a pilot can disclose to the FAA that they might be on certain medications or they might be having mental challenges. The problem is they, the second they disclose a lot of this, they lose their flight certificate. Right. So the, these conditions go hidden. And I think this really brings that argument to the surface is the FAA needs to come up with a way that pilots can say, look, I'm having a problem. Uh, doesn't mean I'm unsafe to fly. It means I've got some issues that I need some help with. Uh, to really be able to reach out without fear of losing their job, simply because they might need some some medicines that the FAA just can, you know, can routinely approve of if they know about, or you know, hey, look, I need six months leave of absence or something like that. They don't want to lose their flight certificate by admitting that they have a problem. So the problems go hidden, uh, which has been a, a big topic in our industry, really a, a focus uh, over these past couple of years, as we've seen even with the FAA in a, a recent case went back and grabbed a bunch of uh, uh, veterans who were um, who were flying on basically their government uh, GI bills and so forth and said, hey, you, you said you had a history of post-traumatic stress or something like this or whatever. 
and we're starting to pull flight certificates. It makes pilots afraid to admit that they have a problem. That in and itself is a problem. Yeah, you wouldn't want pilots to not feel comfortable coming forward with fear of losing their jobs. It kind of defeats the whole purpose. I mean, we've seen it in every in many other industries, whether it be sports or even in journalism, where if you're afraid of losing the privileges that you have, you're a lot less likely to come forward and say, I have a problem. Yeah, absolutely. And that that needs to be fixed. That's the root of this is is a pilot's inability to come forth and say, I need some help with something. Now, let's talk the International Energy Agency today. Doesn't that sound exciting? It's an exciting story, though. They released their annual report today on what the energy world looks like. And it was pretty interesting because what they've pointed out is that they've seen a phenomenal rise in the use of clean energy technologies, right? A phenomenal rise. Um, and they believe that demand for oil, coal, and natural gas will, in fact, peak this decade as the share of fossil fuels in the global energy mix drops, right? Now, this isn't the same for everywhere. And these are sort of forecasts and you can never completely trust a forecast, as you well know, especially one that looks out that far. Um, but the Paris-based energy watchdog says in its 2023 energy outlook release today that if current climate policies around the world uh, will help drive down the share of energy produced by fossil fuels to 73% from 80% by 2030. So that's a pretty big jump. It's a pretty big jump. Um, what we wanted to find out is what does that mean for Canada? What kind of situation are we in now? Because I think one of the complications we're having here is we have the, the federal government and some of the provinces, especially Alberta, at real loggerheads over what the future looks like. Uh, at the same time, the renewable and, and sort of the transition is happening fast. So what does that transition look like for Canada? Can we make sure we're not left behind while making sure that jobs are saved or jobs are kept in Alberta, for instance, um, that our move towards net zero doesn't punish those who can't afford to be punished, right? We want this to be fair, equitable, and a just. They call it a just transition for a reason, even though some people hate that word. But it, if... if in my mind, it just means equitable, right? You want to make sure that people whose lives depend on the industries that exist now are both allowed to keep their jobs. And if those jobs start to vanish, they're helped to find new ones. That's the whole point, right, of this. Uh, that's, of course, way down way down the line. Lance Mortlock, though, has done a lot of work on this. He's managing partner in Energy and Resources Canada at Ernst & Young. And he co-authored a report released earlier this year called Pathway to the 2050 Energy System. And he joins me now. Lance, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's always interesting when these IEA reports come out. I mean, you know, they're, they're very broad. But one of the big things that came out today is this idea that uh, demands for fossil fuels worldwide and all three, oil, gas and coal, uh, will peak by 2030. And uh, that, that's quite a statement, even coming from the IEA, who've come under criticism of late for, for being a li perhaps a little too political by some from some quarters. Yeah, I mean, I, my view, um, my view on on the report and any of these forecasts is ultimately they are forecasts, and you know, with forecasts come inaccuracies. Um, uh, at the end of the day, we don't expect, from an EY perspective, and looking at the results from the IEA report, uh, for there to be any change in momentum as it relates to energy transition. But the future energy system will still involve a complement of hydrocarbons, which includes coal, natural gas, and crude, um, crude oil. Um, and, and that mix will uh, continue to evolve and change. And the right answer is that we need all sources of energy in the future. One of the things that the IEA has called for, they do so again in this report, they have in previous reports. Uh, you did so 
in your report on a on a Canadian level is this call for cooperation, this call for sort of a plan, uh, a national plan, and that can be sometimes a difficult thing to come by in Canada because, again, as you've pointed out, uh, it's decentralized, and we don't all agree on what an energy transition a transition rather looks like. Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, there are benefits and drawbacks of um, <clears throat> you know decentralization of power in Canada. Um, Canada is in many ways. I would say a global leader in energy. We have a resource-rich economy powered by, you know, abundant quantities of oil, natural gas, hydro, nuclear, and renewables. But our energy system is currently very decentralized with no unified national energy strategy. And instead, we see the provinces, you know, individually managing their own resources and energy markets and energy infrastructure that's not fully integrated. And so what this means is that this decentralized approach can mean that, you know, on the positive side, when we see systemic shocks like, I don't know, a cybersecurity breach, our systems are isolated and therefore the impact is a lot smaller. However, decentralization, I think, in our country also means that achieving federal alignment to support energy transition is more difficult which slows down decarbonization uh, and climate change action, action. So, you know, without my, my view, I think EY's view is that without a national um, approach, things like an infrastructure corridor, an energy plan, uh, it's going to be challenging for us to progress, you know, at a rapid pace towards our sustainability goals. Right. And just on the on the renewables front, too, because that comes out uh, quite a bit in the IEA report. Is there an opportunity? Is there a chance here that we will miss the opportunity as this speeds up? Because I think one thing that came out very clearly in the IEA report last year and again this year and in your report, too, is that the pace of transition, the pace of renewables is, is moving very, very quickly, perhaps faster than people expected. And that means if you're sort of stuck debating and on the sidelines of this, it may well pass you by. Now, Canada, as you mentioned, has many natural advantages when it comes to energy production. But at the same time, this is in some senses, as we saw with the U.S. and their, um, you know, their inflation or their, their infrastructure budget, they just released in the last six months or so that this is uh, very competitive and uh, countries need to be uh, you know paddling in the same direction so to speak yeah i mean when you look at the iea report i think what's interesting about it is um you know they're saying saying nearly half the world's electricity supply will come from renewable energy we'll see 10 times as many electric cars on the road by 2030 heat pumps and other source of electric heating systems will outsell fossil fuel boilers, and there'll be three times as much investment in new offshore wind projects than coal and gas-fired power plants. And finally, solar energy will generate more electricity than the entire U.S. power system currently does. So these are big numbers. These are bold statements. Um, And this is all by by 2030. I mean, I think from a Canadian perspective, if I talk about that, um, we have a lot going for us. You know, we're blessed in certain provinces with huge amounts of sunshine. You know, where I live in Calgary, you know, we're, we're blessed with that. I don't think we've lost the opportunity to be an energy transition and a renewable energy powerhouse. But I do worry that we do seem to have a habit of talking and talking and talking and not doing. 
Yeah, I mean, the LG, I was just watching, of course, the Italians had signed a big deal with the Qataris this week to to import a huge amount of LNG right through 2050. And it has you wondering if only Canada had started a little bit earlier. And and this, of course, is progressive governments haven't been very good at getting this ball rolling. Um, What do you think is needed now? Because it feels like at this point, it's become very politicized, uh, that both sides seem to be talking past each other to a certain extent, convinced that they're convinced they both have the moral high ground. I guess what we really need here is to look to places like Europe and cooperate on these things, because I think we can kind of come to some agreement on what a proper energy transition may look like. It may be too slow for some and too fast for others. But ultimately, there must be a sweet spot here because Canada has a has a lot that they could make of this if, if, the, if it's done properly. You know, a couple of things. My view is, um, you know, success is always balancing energy affordability, energy sustainability and energy security. And those three things always need to be in balance. Affordability is going to be an issue, you know, in, in the future. But in our report, you know, to your question, we, we lay out a, a five-point action plan. Number one, you know, we need to define what the future energy system looks like for Canada. Number two, you know, we need to improve public policy and regulatory frameworks to support that. Number three, we need a funding mechanism that supports the scale of investment that we're going to see. Our economists would say that energy transition and getting to net zero in Canada by 2050 will cost us between 60 and 110 billion every year between now and 2050. Where's that money going to come from? Number four, we need to educate and guide the consumer behavior. The reality is that thousands of everyday products that we use come from petroleum sources. And I think most consumers don't actually realize that. And finally, you know, we need to activate public corporate partnership. As I said, you know, something that I saw in Europe we need to get our governments working with the private sector more closely and not act antagonizing each other. Are you more or less optimistic than you were six months ago? Oh, that's a tough question. Um, I am always optimistic that there's a solution um, that, that, that we can find uh, working together. Um, look, we have a lot of um, very smart um, expertise in this country Uh, we've done it before you know when we've built you know considerable rail infrastructure across the country um, more than 100 years ago Um, and we've done it in terms of the development of the oil and gas industry the nuclear industry in ontario and other industries so why can't we do it again lance morlock i appreciate your time thank you so much thank you for having me The story of the Spring Hill mine disaster of 1958 has been memorialized in song, as you heard, and in story for 65 years now. It happened 65 years ago yesterday. Uh, the famous song adapted from a poem written by one of the survivors of that tragedy, uh, Maurice Ruddick. 75 were killed in the coal mine in central Nova Scotia on October 23rd, 1958, as the result of something forever known as a bump or an underground seismic event. It would be the most severe bump in North American mining history, and it still stands as one of the worst work, workplace accidents in our history. Uh, it received 
worldwide attention after 20 miners were trapped for days underground. 19 were rescued. It was one of the first times that that sort of an event could be followed in many ways because TV had become more common, of course, by 1958. Um, It also marked in many ways the decline of the community itself, Spring Hill, that had been a quintessentially quintessential one industry town, a coal town for nearly a century at that point. Not much is left in Spring Hill these days to remind people of the mine or the many that worked and some who died there. There are some plaques and so on, but much of the mine structure, infrastructure, is gone now. It lost its town status about a decade ago, although it is still noted as the hometown of Canadian star Anne Murray, who was a teenager uh, when the mine disaster took place in Spring Hill. Well, to mark 65 years since that disaster, historian and author Ken Cuthbertson has revisited the story of the mine, those who worked there and died there, and how a tragedy now 65 years in the past is still relevant to this day. His book is called Blood on the Coal, the true story of the Great Spring Hill Mine Disaster, and Ken Cuthbertson joins me now. Thank you for your time tonight. Oh, my pleasure. Take me back. I mean, 65 years ago today, the uh, the accident, had happened, the, the explosion, and how or the the accident, the, the shake, I guess it was called. It happened the day before, but there was still there was still much drama going on in Spring Hill 65 years ago today. There was uh, actually, well, actually, um, yeah, it happened on October uh, 23rd, 1958. And um, what happened? It wasn't actually an explosion; it was a bump, which in effect is um, an earthquake. Right. Uh, seismic disturbance. So you'd know all about that uh, on the West Coast, obviously. Uh, and that's what happened in, in Spring Hill. Uh, there had been the ground there was very, very unstable. And in the previous, uh, what, 40 years before this bump, there were some 500 different seismic events. And sometimes these would be uh, fairly major. They'd, they'd kill a few people, <laughs> which which I don't want to trivialize it, but uh, they'd have these bumps and, and people would actually be killed in the mine. And the miners knew that there was going to be a big one, as they called it, the big one. And they didn't want, no one wanted to be underground when that happened. And so they were, the analogy I use is they, the old expression, they were whistling past the graveyard. And that's exactly what they were doing in Spring Hill. They knew that uh, bad something bad was going to happen. And on the evening of October 23rd, 1958, at exactly 8.03 p.m., life changed forever. Uh, 75 lives ended and life changed forever for Spring Hill and for everybody in it. A bump, again, you, you describe the bump itself in the book, as well as in other articles, but the bump was felt far and wide. This was a big, big, big bump. Yeah, it was felt as far uh, far west as Ottawa, and um, certainly in, in um, Halifax, they had a seismograph machine at Dalhousie University, and within, like I think it was 15 or 16 seconds, that machine was recording the event. And people in Spring Hill certainly knew what was happening because uh, windows rattled and uh, buildings actually shook. And there's on the main street of Spring Hill, there's a, um, a a large plinth that has a white marble miner atop it, 16, 16 feet tall. And it had been up there for uh, for about 50 years. And it uh, quivered back and forth from the quake. There was more too. People were trapped, right? There were about 20 miners that were then trapped. And, and this rescue uh, turned into an international story. It did. There were 175 men working in the mine at different levels when the bump happened. And when it happened, uh, luckily, about 100 of them were able to scramble out. Um, uh, Many of them were injured, uh, some quite badly, but they got managed to get out. Uh, 75 um, actually were died. So my math is not good here. Uh, It was less than 100 who got out because 20, in fact, were trapped um, in two different pockets down in the mine. And um, I, I went to that in 
quite a bit of detail in my book. <clears throat> and, you know, the, the problem for these fellows was, A, that they were badly injured in a lot of cases when, when the bump happened. And that was the one thing. The second thing was that they were in the, uh, the pitch black. And so um, if their, their mind lights weren't working, they were in the dark, they had no food, and they had no water because um, they weren't planning to obviously to be down there for that length of time. And to remind listeners, this was, I mean, because coal mining now seems like a thing, although it's not entirely, but it does seem like a thing of the past. It, this mine was incredibly deep at this point, right? It was. Uh, it was It was rumored to be the deepest coal mine in the world. And it was also said to be, and, and there's no way to actually verify this, but it was said to be the most dangerous. And it was the most dangerous because, as I mentioned, uh, the ground there was so unstable. And um, they'd had all these these bumps over the years that killed people. And um, they knew something bad was going to happen. They knew it. You mentioned uh, as well that there were uh, a ta- there was a takeover of the mine not too, too long before this happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were new ideas being brought in to try to figure out how to stabilize uh, the situation within the mine itself, or within the, the, the two shafts. That being said, if, if everyone knew this was a disaster waiting to happen, um, I, I guess in modern, by, by today's standards, it's surprising to see that the mine continued to operate. But as you pointed out, uh, the mine was Spring Hill. The mine was Spring Hill. Um, there were about 7,000 people in uh, in the town, and virtually every job depended on that mine. Um, the miners um, obviously worked in the mine, made a reasonable living. At the time, uh, most Canadian blue-collar workers, uh, people who worked in mines, made around $7,000 a year. And that doesn't sound like a lot of money today, but at the time, it was enough to have a comfortable life. So in Nova Scotia, where, you know, um, good jobs were few and far between, if they, people didn't fish or work in the coal mine, there wasn't much else to do, maybe cut some lumber. Um, so when you looked at um, the livelihood in Spring Hill, even though the price of coal was falling, the market was uh, depressed for coal, uh, and they knew there was no future in the mine, to close that mine would have killed the town uh, instantly. And in fact, that, that's actually what happened as soon as the the bump happened. Um, it wasn't wasn't a pretty situation, and um, you know, really, it, it was the end of the town with that with that bump. How was it then that the? I mean, I, I guess you, you, as you point out, the, the town itself, the community in itself, was put in, in this impossible position whereby it was either the town dies and the jobs go away, or you wait for this inevitable without necessarily knowing that it's going to come the way it came. Uh, but you did mention that there were efforts at least put in place, not that anyone who worked in the mine, in, inside the mine, thought that they were going to be effective. But there had been attempts to try to prevent this from happening that didn't work. In some ways, I think you mentioned that it actually exacerbated the situation. I did. You've done your homework, Ben, because uh, uh, you mentioned that there were some changes at the mine just prior to the bump. And one of the changes and one of the uh, really interesting aspects of this story that I didn't know until I started doing my research was that a year prior to the bump, um, the company was acquired. The company that ran the mine, Dosco Dominion uh, Steel and Coal Company, was acquired by a British aeronautics firm called AV Row. And AV Row had a subsidiary here in Canada, AV Row Canada. And uh, if you if you know your history, Canadian history, you know that uh, around this time, 1958, 57, 58, AV Row was involved, Canada was involved in trying to develop the Avro Aero aircraft. And that was a heavily, uh, very expensive um, project. And they were looking for money for research and development. Don't ask me why, but the people who ran uh, AV Row and AV Row Canada, you would have thought they might have been a little brighter, but uh, they were looking around for basically for cash cows. 
And one of the, the cash cows that they saw was Dosco, the Dominion Steel and Coal Company mine at Spring Hill. They thought, well, we'll buy this and that'll be one of the, uh, the, the one of the revenue producers for us. Um, when people pointed out to the head of the, the corporation that um, it wasn't the mine wasn't doing well and was losing money, he said, well, we're not in the business to lose money. We'll find a way to make money. So what they did, of course, was to look at the, the operation. And one of the things they decided to do was they had their their chief uh, mining engineer, a fellow named Lewis Frost, who was Scottish born, um, had a degree in mining engineering. So he he was a bit of an odd duck in the Canadian mining industry at the time, because very few people back then had uh, proper academic credentials. But Frost came up with this idea, uh, basically to um, change the way they were doing the mining. And he, he had two reasons for doing that. One was um, that it would, he thought, make the mine more profitable, would allow them to pump out more coal. Makes no sense to me and probably not to you to pump out more coal at a time when prices are falling. But that was his idea. The second thing, of course, was he was hoping that it would uh, the innovations that he was uh, putting in place would prevent uh, as many bumps or any, many serious ones. But the miners um, were very suspicious. And Harold Brine, who was the last of the, uh, the surviving miners, where um, Harold is gone now, he left us um, back in early August. He became a good friend and one of my chief sources for my book. Harold told me that he said, and the other miners said, those fellows in short pants, we told them, those fellows in short pants, you're going to kill us all if you go through with this. And he said they went ahead, and sure enough, it, it killed us all, it killed at least 75 of us. He was right about that. Ken Cuthbertson is with us. His book is called Blood on the Coal, the true story of the Great Spring Hill Mine Disaster. Uh, Ken, when you look back in time, I mean, often we think of these, I mean, I think of those movies that were set back in the 50s that always sort of show that moment in the town where there's the sound of a boom or something, and the town knows that something's happened at the mine, right? It, it, it was kind of frozen in time. But in doing your research into this topic, you also thought it was relevant to today. So 65 years ago, this tragedy happens in Nova Scotia. It pretty much decimates the town long term. As you mentioned, there are a few people left there today. But you also thought it was relevant to a 2023 audience as well. Yeah, the reason I said that, um, and I, I didn't realize this when I started doing my research for the book and got into it, but um, if you look at the situation in Spring Hill in 1958, uh, it was a one-industry town. Just about every job in the, in the place uh, in the town depended on that mine. So people knew that if they closed the mine, that would be basically the end of the town's economy and there'd be roughly 1,500 people out of work. Uh, yet they had to continue with the mine and they had had to keep it open by all whatever means they could use to keep it open. But the problem, of course, was that in, in 58, and again, if you're like me, a little old enough to remember this, um, the, the, the railways in Canada uh, were switching over from steam-powered locomotives to diesel-powered. They were doing this all across North America. So that was one of the large largest markets for the Spring Hill coal. And the fact that, that the market was dying, American mines were pumping out more coal than uh, the mines here in Canada at a cheaper rate. So Spring Hill's future was really cloudy. And yet, they, as I said, they had to keep the mine open, even though they knew it was uh, the most dangerous in the world, reputed to be, and the deepest. Plus, the miners who worked in those mines, uh, and, and particularly in Spring Hill, were having problems with black lung disease, which all miners get. It from, comes from the coal dust that's down there. So they had to keep this mine open. So you get one industry town totally reliant on a fossil fuel, which is coal, the quintessential fossil fuel used around the world. And it's been used since almost time immemorial. Um, and yet they had they proceeded to go ahead with the mine. And when I 
started to think about this. Uh, I saw certain parallels in our situation today when we talk about the fight for climate or against uh, climate change. And we look at um, the economic rationale for continuing to do what we're doing. And I, I, it makes me shudder because I saw what happened in Spring Hill as the Spring Hill people did. And as Ann Murray pointed out in uh, the foreword to my book, mm-hmm. uh, it's the problem with fossil fuel in 58 is echoed with the problems today. And I, I don't want to sound like a preacher, but certainly it makes you think and you wonder and you think, gee, I hope it turns out better for us than it did for the people in Spring Hill in 58. Anne Murray will be a name that most uh, most listeners, I, I imagine, will be uh, be familiar with. She's a daughter of Spring Hill. She's sort of the most famous uh, person to emerge from Spring Hill, and 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 yet this disaster uh, was certainly something that marked her. Something that she that she knows well, be, being both you know being being from there. It's been uh, an important chapter in her life as well. It is, and uh, Anne is um, Anne is a very down to earth person. Uh, wonderful to talk to if you ever get the opportunity. Her dad was uh, one of the doctors in town, Carson Murray, and one of the leading citizens. Her mom as well was very, very well known. Anne, uh, at the time, uh, was still in a, a teenager, and she was just starting her singing career, and not professionally, but she was known in the community as a singer. And she had a lot of friends there, and she told me that when the bump happened, one of her uh, good best friends, her dad was in the mine. So Anne and her best friend, the best friend, went down to the mine along with everybody else who rushed down there. And each day for, for a week or so, they would go down to the mine early in the morning and stay there through the day, hoping to hear news of the uh, the friend, uh, dad, who was down the mine. So Anne Marie mentioned that it was cold, it was wet, people got hungry, but uh, like the others who were in the town, she persevered and, and she she suffered as they did. Uh, of course, she didn't have a relative who died or was injured in the mine, but uh, she was certainly there and, and suffered the emotional trauma. Yeah. And 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 there's just not much left to remind us 65 years later of of the mine itself and and of the tragedy. There are a few things, uh, but Spring Hill has pretty much sort of faded, started to fade away as a community. Period. It has been. Uh, I was one of the things that really stunned me was if you go to the site of the mine, where the mine was. There are a couple of tablets uh, there. It's a national historic site, but there's not really much to to mark it. And back in '58, there were acres. Literally acres of uh, development there with uh, smokestacks and um, the pit head and railway tracks and all sorts of buildings where they uh, did maintenance work and whatnot. It's all gone today. And what's there now uh, is a field with some scrubby weeds in it and a few piles of dirt. Uh, Springville's no longer a town. It lost its town status in 2014 because it just didn't have a tax base anymore. So in 58, it was around 7,000 people. Today, it's um, a little over 2,000. And uh, it's never really recovered there. Um, some industries there, small industries and businesses, but the town is, is a pretty sleepy place. And the pity is it's such a beautiful uh, location, the Cobequid Hills and the people of Spring Hill, um, even the ones who don't live there anymore. And a lot of people did move away after the bump. If people who still live there and people you meet from Spring Hill are proud of, of uh, their town and they're proud of their, their heritage and they're proud of uh, how tough the people were to bounce back after that uh, mine disaster. They didn't bounce back economically, but emotionally, uh, they re- regained their equilibrium and uh, life goes on. Well, Ken, I'm glad you've shed some light on this too. It's important to remember uh, Spring Hill and the mining disaster 65 years later. Thanks so much. That's my pleasure. Thank you very much. I'm ready. Cheers. 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 Just that violent and ever-growing um, thing that is somehow making my face tighter like 
the skin of my face feels tighter. What do you think of the flavor, Klaus? I love the flavor. <laughs> I think there's some oak in it. <laughs> and pencil. I'm in heat. Heaven? I'm in heat. That is uh, something called the hot ones uh, uh, with Sean Evans and Chili Klaus and Smoke and Ed Curry uh, eat the world's new hottest pepper. So that is them chomping down on something known as the Pepper X. And it is one hot pepper. Uh, I mean, it is, according to Ed, it is exponentially hopper, hotter than the Carolina Reaper, which he also created, which was previously the hottest pepper around. We've been asking you tonight, what's the spiciest thing you've ever eaten, by the way, if you want to let me know. We're trying to spice up a little more conversation on this Tuesday, kind of a dreary, rainy one here where I am. So figure this would be a nice way to heat things up a bit. Uh, let me know the spiciest thing you've ever eaten. one 9898 is the text line. one 9898 Well, Ed Curry, well, the hottest thing he's ever eaten is something he created. He created it exactly for these for this purpose, the Pepper X. Uh, the Guinness World Book of Records declared it the hottest pepper earlier this month. So now it's official. He's now holds yet another record. He actually owns, he's in South Carolina, and he started a company called the Pucker Butt Pepper Company many, many moons ago. Um, and he's just an absolute pepper aficionado. He eats it, eats it all the time. He calls it his obsession. But there's actually a really cool story behind how this all came to be. Uh, it's a story of fighting off addiction. It's a story of um, romancing and, and falling in love. It's a story of giving back as well uh, as he does. And it's also the story of creating, just as he put it, had him literally bent over groaning in pain for three or four hours, creating a pepper so hot, it'll blow your, you know, it'll just blow your mind. So it's literally, literally. So we thought, let's ask Ed Curry about uh, this whole story that he's been on, this whole journey that he's been on, and this thing called Pepper X, because even the, even the name sounds kind of daunting, doesn't it? Ed Curry, thanks so much for your time tonight. Oh, thank you for having me on. It's an honor. Uh, you're quite the pepper aficionado. I mean, to go into, uh, I mean, your daily routine is, is pretty remarkable. Yeah, uh, pretty much since uh, four this morning, I've been dealing with peppers, and I'll be dealing with peppers till five or six this evening. Right, you know, my life, I couldn't make up my life if I tried. <laughs> you eat a lot of them as well. You don't just grow them; you tend to consume them. Oh, I consume a lot of pepper. Uh, I've already I start my day every morning with uh, drops of pepper oil inside of my coffee, uh, and then I, uh, you know. I taste peppers all day long. I taste hot, hot sauce all day long. And uh, we eat peppers again at dinner. I might eat some more peppers during the day. Who knows, you know? <laughs> What's Every it like? To... Just a little different. What's it, what are those hot pepper drops in the coffee like? I can't imagine. That must taste interesting, actually. It goes well with chocolate. It must go yeah. well with coffee, too. It goes really well with coffee, and it uh, elevates your body. Uh, uh, you know, it... it Peppers increase your metabolism, so it kind of gives you a head start on waking up. <laughs> no doubt. Tell me about this. Is this something that you've been doing for a really long time? Were you sort of the kid who put Tabasco on their Fruit Loops kind of thing? Uh, no. Uh, when I was a kid, I just had stuff like pepper flakes and pepperoncini and things. It wasn't until I got in college that I was interested in peppers. And uh, I've been growing and breeding peppers ever since. Uh 
I really got serious about it when I uh, when I got clean in 1999 from uh, alcohol and drugs. And uh, the rest is history. It's just taken off from then. Yeah, tell me, because your love of peppers helped you beat a bunch of stuff and help you find love, too. I mean, peppers have been have been good. You've been good to them and they've been good to you. Yeah, yeah. The the woman who I eventually married uh, nine months later, uh, she wouldn't even talk to me. She called me names like she called me a funny little man. When I asked her if uh, uh, I could get her number or name, she said, who wants to know? But uh, I made some salsa and uh, that changed everything. She uh, moved me in slightly after and we were married nine months later. That's that must have been some great salsa, Ed. Uh, yeah, I make some pretty damn good salsa. <laughs> Tell me about this Pepper X, because even the name sounds uh, ominous. Well, you know, uh, Pepper X is just one of many uh, super hot peppers that we bred out. And we knew we had some special right away. And the initial testing uh, showed it to be very promising. Uh, we we actually started that one back in uh, 2011 or 2000. 10 somewhere back in there and uh uh it just kept on getting hotter and hotter and hotter as we were you know stabilizing it and uh testing it and uh we were going to submit it before covid hit but uh you know covid put a a damper on just about everything except for the great state of south carolina and uh you know so after everything opened back up again we started that process with guinness and uh we did we submitted all the things they required they uh independently verified it and on the hot one show that aired on october 16th uh the guinness adjudicator was there much to my uh surprise and uh we were awarded the hottest pepper in the world how hot is it ed because i mean i think most people can have, have probably at this point maybe had hot things in their lives but they probably had nothing that even comes oh. close to pepper x yeah pepper x was certified at 2.693 million scoville heat units over a million higher than my last record the carolina reaper uh and that scale is not a linear scale it's more like a log logarithmic scale right uh, so L like uh, earthquakes like earthquakes yeah, yeah. yeah like earthquakes so the scientists have to I'm going to use that if you don't mind. Absolutely. <laughs> sure. The scientists have told me that, uh, you know, it's more like three times hotter than the Reaper. Wow. Which is absolutely ridiculous. That makes the Reaper a roller skate and Pepper X a Saturn rocket. You know, it's just two totally different animals. So uh, when I uh, yeah. ate it on hot ones, it was not pleasant at all. And I've... someone's going to have to pay me a lot of money to do that again. Yeah, you, you ate you ate one, uh, which of course I mean I suppose if you're going to grow one, you should be the one to one to consume it. But uh, I hear it was it was quite the experience. Yeah, uh, the heat was unbearable for a couple of hours, and then the cramps were unbearable for a lot longer, uh, to the point where in the middle of that uh, horrendous rainstorm that caused the catastrophe in the in New York City, mm -hmm. I was laying on a marble slab groaning in pain for over an hour uh but you know being the kind of person i am as soon as all that was done i turned around and i ate more peppers with my friends at dinner
That's, I mean, you're either, I mean, I, I suppose after that, you, I, I guess something that hot, like the X, doesn't really bring much pleasure, right? I mean, it's pretty much just an out-of-body experience, whereas that for dinner, you're probably enjoying the food again. Yeah, peppers are best uh, served in a condiment like hot sauce or eaten in very small pieces with food. Uh, I don't recommend anybody eat a whole pepper of anything. Uh, that's not how we're supposed to eat our food. And peppers are just a fruit, and we're supposed to enjoy them, not uh, not curse them and, and want to die. Yeah. And, and you, what do you make of all this sort of macho eating where people try to eat as many of them as possible and so on? It all seems like it's doing a bit of disrespect for something that uh, to something you really you really enjoy and admire. Uh, you know, Everybody is looking for their 15 minutes of fame, and I don't begrudge anybody those 15 minutes. Uh, but a lot of the things I see out there are just plain stupid. And then other people who don't understand uh, what they're going through, what they're going to go through, try it. And then they, you know, they're in a lot of pain and they don't know what to, what's going to happen. Uh, there's nothing that can happen to you uh physically that is permanent damage it's all a brain trick our body perceives as heat uh but uh some of the stuff that happens afterwards can cause some damage like our bodies are not meant to drink a gallon of milk at, at one time right uh, you can you can uh choke on the vomit that's going to happen from that you know yeah, there, yeah. There's, there's a bunch of different things that are just you know why put yourself through that? Now, yeah, you, that yeah. being said, I've done that stuff before and I do it because I, you know, it can be a challenge for me. Uh, uh, you know, and I'm a risk taker. I'm one of those thrill seekers. Uh, but you don't see me videotaping myself doing those things. <laughs> uh, no. And I always regret it afterwards. I'm like, uh, I did that for my friends uh, just to, you know. I I ask God for forgiveness for letting my ego get involved. You know, <laughs> you do grow them as well. Though. I mean, given what you do, I guess you get a you get a free pass on this one. I think because you yeah. come by it naturally. You'd be it would be natural to eat what you grow, even if it's super hot. Right? It would be. Yeah, it you know it just comes by comes by me natural. I you know, uh, I was doing a little interview earlier today with. Uh, uh, a Hungarian TV show. Oh wow! They know their paprika, of course. They've got they've got they've yeah. got their pepper their pepper bona fides for sure. Yeah. Well, uh, I reached over and I grabbed a pepper X. I cut it open and I took a lick. <laughs> that was not a very smart thing to do. Uh, but you know, uh, yeah. I won't ask you to do the same. Do it again a couple more times today, but that's you know. That's all anybody's going to get out of me today. Yeah. This luckily this is this is audio radio so you don't have to you don't have to lick the pepper for me. I won't see it. There's a great it, story you talked earlier about your recovery too but how peppers help you kind of help you find your way uh, in many ways and how you give back, how you hire others who are also going through the same kind of recovery uh, process and how much the company has grown to kind of, you know, it's about peppers but it's also about help and community and all and all kinds of good things. Yes, correct. Well, you know, uh, God provided me with a second chance at life. A lot of other people have that, you know, relationships that I destroyed in my addiction and my alcoholism have uh, given me a second chance. So who am I? 
who am I uh, to not give others a second chance? And what better community to do it with than the one that I, I'm a part of? Uh, now, that has come back to bite me in the butt a few times, uh, but it's more than worth uh, those few bad experiences to see the changes we've made in other people's lives and in our community. Uh, you know, many of our employees have gone on to uh, fulfill their lifelong dreams after we gave them a hand up, not a hand out. And, you know, we've had employees go into accounting, go into helping people who are coming out of prison, to the police, uh, to the sheriffs. I mean, just, uh, you know, I'm not trying to keep people hostage here. If you have a dream, help me let you uh, succeed in your dream, you know, uh, because I had a dream and it came to fruition. So uh, I, the best I can do for anybody else is help them have their dreams come to fruition. And I understand just from from reading through interviews you've done that Linda, your wife, has played a huge role in this. You mentioned the salsa and the courtship and so on, but she's also been able to really help you turn this dream into a reality. Oh, yeah. she. If I, it wouldn't be possible without her. Uh, after I ran out of money, she funded it uh, until it, it was self-funding. And, you know, we've sacrificed uh, our time, which is the most important thing we have in life. Uh, what You know, the value that we we do in using our time, you know, and she's sacrificed, you know, vacations and fixing the house and getting new clothes, all sorts of stuff so that we could live this dream. Uh, but she understands it. Uh, she herself has been in recovery for 38 years and she dedicated to lo- her life to treating people uh, with all sorts of addictions. Uh, so, uh, you know, one day we'll benefit from what we're doing other than the spiritual benefit that we get from doing this every day of our lives. Ed Curry, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. It's been wonderful to hear your story. I appreciate you having me on, and I, I look forward to hearing it on the radio. This is all of the garbage here, 68 beer cans. I've never even heard of Sonic shoes before. Somebody tell me how old that is. And then of couple of paddles, some solo cups, one glass or one plastic bottle, a couple of glass bottles, a mask that's actually in fantastic shape. That hasn't been down there for very long. That is some of the bounty that Henry Wang uh, finds when he dives, uh, when he dives in and around BC. Now you may think, where exactly is he diving? Because this doesn't sound like coral reefs or, you know, beautiful sea creatures and so on, uh, which is what many scuba divers do. In fact, I've, I've done it. You pay a fairly handsome penny to go out on a boat and be sort of jump overboard and go for a little paddle down below and see some exotic looking stuff. Uh, Henry's done all that, but he decided to put his scuba diving to some good use as well, which is going around different bodies of water around the lower mainland of BC. He's been doing it for more than a decade, looking for trash. And I saw this statistic in another story, and it sounds 
very large, but apparently in the decade, he's pulled up something like 59,000 pounds of garbage. 59,000 pounds. That is a lot of garbage. And he continues to do it. Uh, and it's, I mean, what a great, what a great way. I mean, I can't imagine it could be that much fun from a diving perspective, but what a way to use that skill to try to clean things up. And I guess it's really quite amazing to think about just how much stuff is down there and how much people just, even today, even today, here we are in 2023, you'd think we would know better, uh, but we should, you know, we shouldn't be throwing stuff into the lake, but I guess people still do it. And Henry Wang joins me now. Henry, thanks so much for your time tonight. Hey there, how are you today? Well, this well, congratu- I mean, congratulations. What a great thing to do. Uh, but, you know, I've been diving a few times over the years in some pretty nice spots. I can't imagine the diving is very good. It must be pretty murky, but y- you certainly do some good work. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. It, um, it's very satisfying for me. I, um, I do try to put my skill set to good use, and uh, it's, it's, yeah, I seem to be having a lot of fun doing it from <laughs> all this funny stuff that I pull up. Yeah. Tell me, I mean, I guess to go back to the beginning, you sort of took up diving uh, about 20 years ago, right? I mean, it was, it was something or something that you'd maybe done before, but you sort of got serious about it uh, back in 2004. Yeah, that's right. Uh, coming up on the twenty-year twenty-year uh, anniversary, time time flies. Yeah, it was on um, it was on the Thailand vacation. I saw these uh, sandwich board signs on the beach that said "Open Water Paddy." That's the professional association of uh, diving instructors. And of course, at the time, I really didn't even know what scuba diving is. I mean, we've seen it in the James Bond movie, as it were. But um, right. I was like, "Oh, it's really curious." And then my wife suggested that I uh, that I take a course. Um, not while we're on vacation, but taken at home here in Vancouver, so that we're not studying and so on. And that's where the adventure began. Awesome! I actually did my patty in Thailand, and I can rec- I can guarantee you, you got a better one in Vancouver because I think in Thailand it's all tourists, so they just throw you over the over the board, then sign, give you your certificate, essentially, right? It's pretty. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, that's right. I, yeah. I, don't, I don't want to criticize them too much because they they I got my card there, but they're pretty. It's pretty lackadaisical the way it goes. And so you you actually opened a dive shop. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I I already owned a different business at the time and uh, had a, a little bit of extra money uh, sitting around. And I thought, you know what, um, the dive shop that I was going to at the time wasn't servicing me very well. So I, I decided to just open my own dive shop and uh, having already some experience with, with the business uh, uh, owning, I, it, was, it was pretty easy uh, to get that set up and get it going. And so I had opened it up and then that lasted until... Uh, about 2013, sort of, uh, like moved on for me, and I said, "Ah, oh, you know what? Let's let's uh, let's move on." And that's where, in 2013, when I sold the dive shop, that's where the trash removal adventure began. A friend of mine had asked me, "Hey, do you want to go dive at Bunsen Lake?" And that was the um, immediately after the sale of my uh, dive shop. And I said, oh, sure, right. why not? I've never dove in a BC lake before. And when we got into Bunsen Lake, we saw all those uh, beer cans and beer bottles and so on. It was just an absolutely ridiculous amount of trash. And, of course, we we didn't know the trash was there, and we really didn't have a way to collect it. So we kind of filled our pockets with uh, with a few cans and bottles. And then we brought some friends, brought some trash-collecting bags with us. And then I think we did seven dives at Bunsen Lake and removed about 1,500 pounds and then the thought was, well, where where else would trash be? So we went to Lost Lake in Whistler, found a bunch of trash there, Cat Lake in Squamish, and that was just absolutely filled with trash, way more than Bunsen. And, and that's where really the idea began. 
It's when you when you find that trash. I mean, how much of it is? Do you get the impression that it's trash that's been there for decades? Like this is stuff that's just never been picked up, and you're actually going in and taking away sort of layers and layers of of you know littering history as you go down there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we we when we pick up trash that uh, we haven't seen this beer bottle since the, since the '80s, as an example. I right. found uh, uh, a beer bottle in Grace Lake, just out in. Um, the mission area and it was a stubby bottle from export it was made by uh, or the bottle itself was export a i actually don't know exactly i think it's at molson's uh but it's right yeah. A beer. yeah and right. that beer hasn't been around since 1984 so however long that beer has been in that lake and it was unopened in fact it was full of beer so <laughs> um so yeah some of the stuff's been there forever for sure and then of course places like cat lake uh, in a very specific area. So, for example, I go into Cat Lake and I, and I clean one particular area to the point where I know there's nothing else there, and I'll go back to right. a month later, and it's filled with garbage again. So I know that this garbage is fresh. Right? So there's different kinds Henry, of garbage, so, for sure. It's so disappointing that here we are in 2023 and people are still tossing stuff into the lake like it, like it was going to vanish, <laughs> like it was simply going to vanish. Well, I mean, that, part's, that's part, that part to me is, is disappointing. We, don't we know better by this point that we shouldn't be? I can understand my dad back in the 70s throwing beer bottles over the side of the canoe, but really, 2023, we're still doing that? Yeah, I try not to criticize people. I mean, the reality is, is that, uh, as, as you know, kids go camping and they're having a few drinks and they're having a little fun. And they leave their empties on the dock, and of course they go to bed in their tents, and then they forget their empties, and then the wind comes up, and everything gets blown into the blown into the water. So uh, yeah, I try not to criticize people, and sometimes I find very expensive items, such as two thousand dollars cell phones or three hundred dollars Ray Ban sunglasses, and those are all accidental. So yeah, I don't yes. really just kind of sort of preach the idea of you know, oh, you guys are all littering, right? So because I know a lot of stuff is probably accidental just blows in of course uh, that's happened to all of us with sunglasses especially everyone knows that feeling tell me about something i mean this is the obvious question but tell me some of the the real gems or the real surprising stuff that you found on your dives well you know i uh, so so the, this is a two-part answer so the first part is uh, i will give you the example of some items uh i have uh, uh, a couple items that are very special to me is at silver lake in scotia valley and then the other one that weaver lake on mission again uh, I found uh, a woodworking, like logging tools. So a double-headed um, a Puget Sound axe, and as well as um, uh, these log rolling tools that are called PVs. And they're roughly between 90 to 110 years old because I did some research on when the area was logged. So those are very special finds to me. Um, I found um, some very expensive boat props and a very expensive um, uh, wedding photographer lenses that they were changing lenses on the dock and it fell over and just ended up in the water. The lens was completely ruined, but it was such a fun find. But the, the second part of the answer is like, you know what? So, so every special find gets replaced by the next special find. And I don't really right. hold a lot of value in the special things that I find. What I really remember, honestly, is the good times that I had with my friends when I'm diving. So for example, I'll remember diving at a lake and I won't remember the trash, but I'll remember the good times that I had with my friends. Hey, you know, you know, we'll have a barbecue afterwards, or maybe we went camping at the lake so we can dive a couple of days in a row to remove more trash. Right? So I remember the really good times that I spent with my buddies. Really, that's the that's what I take away from it. 
Yeah, and you're doing some good work at the same time. I mean, scuba diving, if you're sort of going out on a boat, it can be pretty expensive. So this is a nice way of having a, getting all the benefits of it, doing something good, hanging out with your friends, and it mustn't cost a huge amount. It's not a fortune, right? It's not like going on some some scuba diving expedition out to some somewhere in the middle of the ocean. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, for me to pay for money to, t- to, to fly to Thailand or to go to Mexico to go cave diving again, um, it, it, it definitely can be expensive. So for me to maintain my skill set because the diving that I do is a little bit challenging. So it's, mm-hmm. uh, so I get out weekly to do my dives, keep my skills sharp, and, uh, and I do have a little bit of sponsorship. The local dive shop here does actually sponsor my air fills, so that kind of cuts the cost down. And I do have a little bit of donation money that comes in to, to keep the fuel cost down a little bit as I get out to these lakes. So the downside is I live in North Vancouver, and all of these lakes are pretty far from me. Some of them are 45 right. minutes to an hour, two-hour drive. So, yeah, the, the gas cost is, is significant. It gets there. Where does all the garbage go at this point? I, mean, I guess you have to sort through some of it, but where does, all the, where does it all end up? So uh, pretty much every jurisdiction that I dive in. So, for example, if I go to, uh, if I go to Cultus Lake, so that's a, the, it's managed basically by either the Cultus Lake Parks Board or BC Parks, depending on which side of the lake you're on. I notify them that I'm coming, and then I just have to leave the garbage, and they'll come and pick it up. Places like Sasma Lake, that's governed by Metro Vancouver. So, and I basically have a hotline with those guys, and I'll just say, hey, let's send them popping over on Monday. I'll do my dive, and all they want to know is, okay, what time to pick the garbage up? I have um, quite a few cities and um, uh, whatnot, I guess, town, townships. They work right. with me. In fact, I have keys to lock gates so they can have better access. So I can actually get my vehicle dive gear down to the lakes. Um, and then all I have to do is basically let them know that I'm coming. Right. Do, do you, I mean, I, I guess anybody anywhere could do this. I mean, there, to be clear, I mean, you, don't, you have to know how to dive. And diving in lakes can be pretty dark. It can be pretty murky, right? It's not like you kind of, you do, you do need to know what you're doing. It might, it's not that deep often, but you kind of have to know what you're up to, to, to do it. But I suppose if you have the skills, anybody across the country could, it's a little warmer here, mind you, in BC, but most anybody across the country could do this. Yeah, I do caution that there are some specialized skill sets. For example, you do have to know how to lift heavy things off the lake bottom. If you're very mm-hmm. comfortable in zero visibility. So uh, on my website, because I do get a lot of people reaching out to ask if they can volunteer with me because they've taken a scuba diving course while they were on vacation in Thailand. And uh, so what I did to eliminate a lot of the people who really had no diving experience on my website, in, on the contact page, I simply say, if you have a thousand dives, then you can... Uh, that's the right. number that we're looking for. Um, and, and so to caution people who think that they can go out to any environment where there might be overhead hazards. So, for example, at Cat Lake, there's a lot of trees that have fallen into the lake from the lake shore over the decades. And those become entangled in hazards as well as an overhead environment if you're trying to reach for a beer can that's entangled in fallen trees. So you get, you get tangled up pretty good pretty quick. So what I recommend is that people are recommend, uh, that are thinking about doing this, if they are already a scuba diver, is simply reach out to their dive shop and uh, make sure that they're taking the uh, appropriate classes, the courses that teaches them how to be self-reliant in the water, as well as to be able to rescue your partner, perhaps, and to be able to properly lift things off the bottom. And 
then along that line, uh, I also have a lot of uh, people who don't scuba dive and have no interest or ability to scuba dive. They reach out to me and say, hey, listen, I would love to come out and help on land if I can. And I simply right. point out the fact that they could be helpful by simply picking up garbage around their own neighborhood. If you go for a dog walk or maybe you go walk with your kids around the block after dinner, if you see a coffee cup on the ground, if you pick that up, that's one item that isn't going to get washed down the storm drain into the ocean where it's a lot harder to go and remove trash. So people can right. be volunteering their own way. And where can people find your website, Henry, if they're, if they're curious? All of my social media is actually under at Cleaner Lakes. And the organization itself is called, yeah, the organization itself is actually called Divers for Cleaner Lakes. But all of the social media is under at Cleaner Lakes. Well, uh, Henry, I, I learned to dive in Thailand. I never put it to such good, such good use, but I wasn't a great diver either. So congratulations on all the good work. Thanks so much for sharing your story. Thank you, and I really appreciate being on the air.